In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Sam Selikoff about Ember.js and how it stacks up against frameworks like React and Vue in 2018. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 89. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Sam Selikoff. How's it going, Sam? It's going good, man. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, do you mind just briefly introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, I'm uh, I'm a full stack developer, uh, but primarily I've been working with uh, Ember.js for you know the past four or five years. And that's during that time kind of been steeped in the world of uh, front-end JavaScript development. And um, for about a year and a half, I've been working with my business partner, Ryan Toronto, on our website, which is uh, embermap.com. And that's where we kind of just make videos teaching Ember developers how best to use the framework. So, um, yeah, that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of a snapshot. Awesome, man. So I think um, maybe the best place to start is... Uh, I think the most interesting thing about what you said there is that you've been working with Ember for the past four or five years. <laughs> and um, if you look at any sort of uh, any of the other sort of flavor of the week JavaScript frameworks, uh, you know, even the ones that feel like they have a lot of staying power, uh, there's not going to be a lot of people out there who have been using Vue for four or five years or <laughs> React for four or five years either, uh, because, you know, the tools are just so much newer, even though they kind of dominate the JavaScript landscape these days. So... I think what would be interesting to talk about first is maybe uh, what, why do you think like Ember still, uh, you know, has momentum and has a community? It seems like it comes from an era of JavaScript frameworks. Like, you know, Ember was big around the same time, like Angular one was big and even mm-hmm. stuff like knockout and stuff like that. But all mm-hmm. that stuff is, is dead essentially now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ember, you know, is still chugging along, still doing interesting things. Uh, developing interesting new features still has a pretty strong community. Um, so, what do you think uh, makes Ember different than sort of the frameworks that it left behind? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and, and and we were hanging out at, at MicroConf talking about this, and uh, you know, there's a lot of JavaScript developers there, and you know, most folks are using React and and Vue. Like, if you just kind of grab your average JavaScript developer off the street, they'll probably be using one of those two things. And uh, I did keep getting the kind of same response. It was funny, you know. It was it was fun being outside of the bubble too, because, you know, the Ember community is kind of big, and we've kind of been together for so long. And you go to a place with uh, with different folks, and so it's fun getting that reaction, like, "Whoa, that's still a thing." <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think, you know, I think uh, largely it comes down to um, it's been around for about six years, a little bit more. Uh, before that, it was called Sprout Core, and, it, and that was um, came out of Apple originally, the Mobile Me site, and uh, it kind of became Ember in so many ways. And um, there's just been some core people involved with it ever since. And um, you know, like you said, it's it's started with you know after Backbone around the same time as Angular, and Ember's never been that dominant number one player, but there's always been um, a strong community. And, uh, you know, Yehuda Katz, one of the co-creators, the way he phrased it was, you know, even if Ember is not the biggest technology, 
the way he wanted it to be seen as was the biggest set of opinions within JavaScript. So, you know, React has a ton of users, Vue has a ton of users. Um, but, you know, React, you can find a React user who likes Redux or who likes um, another state management library or who likes different combinations of libraries. And so once you look at the set of opinions that are used to make a full application, you know, and that's one of the one of the values of those communities. One of the values of those frameworks is that you can choose the parts of your apps that you like. And so developers who like choosing um, those those frameworks and communities are um, more well suited for what they value. And in Ember, the kind of value is like we're going to choose together. We're going to eliminate some of these decisions, actually a lot of these decisions, so that everyone using Ember is kind of uh, all in the same boat. And and when it comes time to incorporate some new technology or tool into our workflow, we're going to do it in a way that kind of everyone gets access to it. And so, you know, that being at the core of our philosophy, kind of eliminating decision making, eliminating differences between our apps that aren't really that consequential. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear the phrase convention over fig- configuration. Uh, and that's kind of the phrase that I think encapsulates one of the core values of Ember. You know, once you have a community that's bought into this set of uh, tools and shared abstractions, you know, and you start building apps in this way and you just kind of keep going. And so, you know, if you've been using Ember for four or five or six years, your Ember app looks like basically every other Ember app. And as all of the development's going on, you're just getting access to these new features. Now you're not going to get access to them, you know, the second they land in browsers or the second a new library comes out. But within six months or a year, you will. And so, you know, kind of putting yourself in, in those people's shoes, it's like now I have an app and it's it looks like an Ember app and other Ember developers can work on it. So it's a, it's a big switching cost to kind of just stop using Ember, you know. And that's not to say Ember is for for every situation, but I think that's I think that's a big part of why the community has stayed strong for so long. Cool, man. I think um, what's kind of interesting there, I guess, is it kind of feels like Ember is the only thing that I really know of in the JavaScript sort of ecosystem that competes at like the convention over configuration level with something like Rails. You know what I mean? If you look at backend Node frameworks there's a few out there but nothing has really picked up any steam you know what i mean there's a couple i can think of like adonis is like a back-end framework that i've seen but i don't think it's it's really huge i still think most people are stringing things together with express plus whatever other 500 libraries uh, right. that, that they want to use for something it seems like a lot of us are doing that same sort of thing on the front end but ember takes a lot more of like a rails holistic uh kind of end-to-end framework approach. So maybe it would be interesting to talk about is kind of what all the pieces uh, are that, you know, are kind of included in Ember and uh, especially the stuff that maybe you wouldn't get with a framework like React. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so there's lots of different pieces. I think the part that would be most familiar to folks who use React or Vue would be kind of the rendering layer yeah and uh that's so that's part of ember that's actually like core ember you know if you think of kind of when you create a new ember app you know you do like ember new my app on the command line um well first of all that command is being run with ember cli so that's one part that you get um 
And actually, maybe that's a good place to start, actually. Mm-hmm. So how does Ember CLI compare to, um, like, you know, we have like Create React app or Vue has a CLI tool and stuff. I kind of feel like Ember CLI tool is a little bit more, um, I don't know what the right word for it is, but I kind of feel like it does more and is more sort of integral to the entire sort of Ember development process. So mm-hmm. what is the Ember CLI all about, um, you know, in contrast with maybe some of the other CLI like scaffolding generators that maybe we're used to in other tools. Yep. So I think it is different from a scaffolding tool. Um, I don't know as much about Vue CLI. I would, if I had to guess, I would guess it's closer to Ember CLI than something like create react app. But, um, I think the big difference between, uh, something like the CLI and, um, scaffolding tool is, you know, so, once you install Ember CLI, you can create a new project using Ember New. Um, and then you can run your tests using Ember Test. And you can serve your app using Ember Serve. And um, you can generate new components or routes or tests um, or things that Ember add-ons, which are node modules that are kind of augmented with additional Ember functionality, sometimes those provide generators for you as well so there's a lot of ways that it's tied together and um you know it started out as a way to create a development environment so originally ember js was you know just a package that was shipped and you were responsible for wiring it up to yourself and and but now ember cli lets you scaffold that app and serve it and you know it does things like rebuild your app when you change source files and it does you know um, all concatenation and, and source maps and minification and um, all the kinds of things that, you know, we used to use Grunt and Gulp for and that Webpack yeah. does a lot of these days. So I think the, the build part, the build step is built into Ember CLI. That's a, that's a, ma- a big component. And then, but because the way every Ember app is served and developed and tested is the same, namely because every Ember app uses Ember CLI, the big innovation with Ember CLI is the add-on, um, the add-ons. And so what an Ember add-on is, is basically a, a library that you would pull into your Ember app and it's a node module. So you would, you know, you could install it using NPM or yarn the same way you would any other front end project. But when you run Ember serve, part of what Ember CLI does is look at your package JSON for packages that are, uh, Ember add-ons and run certain code within those add-ons that can affect your build pipeline. So for example, um, you know, your audience is probably familiar with Tailwind and uh, I've been working on an Ember add-on for Tailwind. So today, if you wanted to add Tailwind to your Ember app, um, you know, you could follow the in- installation instructions that you put on Tailwind site. So you can NPM install it and then you can also install post CSS and then you can configure that to run and be part of your build. But what the Ember add-on does that I'm working on, actually we're already using it, but this is a kind of an example of what you can do with an add-on, is make it so that when an Ember app installs Ember CLI Tailwind, it will just pull in post CSS if the host app doesn't have it, it will configure it to build Tailwind, and it even will create, it'll generate files, one for each of the Tailwind modules, copy those into the host application source directory, and now the host app can change those variables like the colors and have the app rebuild. 
And I can even provide a slash tailwind style guide route that kind of summarizes all the config options and the tailwind classes that are available to you as kind of as an Ember developer using tailwind. So that's just one example of the kind of functionality that an Ember add-on can provide. And there's, you know, there's the, the examples out there, they're all over the place. Like there's an SVG add-on that can uh, compress and inline your SVG files so that you can call them using just a normal tag. But when you ship it to production, it kind of minifies them and, and inlines them. So being so integrated with the build pipeline and you know the testing infrastructure and the generators and all that stuff means that these add-ons basically provide tons of out-of-the-box functionality for Ember developers. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Like, if you compare that to basically any other tool that you might use with JavaScript, there's not really a lot that someone can provide from a package that can compete with that in terms of how much it can do for you because there's just so many unknowns about what tools you're using in your project, how you have things set up, what folder structure you're using, like all sorts of opinions that yep. you can make assumptions about those uh, with an Ember app, which gives you a lot of opportunity to to sort of do interesting things without putting a lot of onus on the end user to configure things or specify options or do any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and, and again, it's kind of similar uh, to the Rails days where you have gems, which, you know, can just be provide like any Ruby code. And, you know, the host app can kind of use that however they want. But, you know, you might also be able to uh, provide like an engine that the host app can integrate with their Rails app and provide additional functionality because every Rails app uses the same router and uses the same, you know, rack and all, all of these things that are just shared. Since you're making those assumptions, you're kind of starting out on the 10th floor already. And um, it's one of the best, it's one of the best things about being an Ember developer. So like, you know, your, your actual day-to-day Ember development, you know, doing feature work in an application um, basically looks like, you know, you create your Ember app and then you need, you know, you need a couple packages, something like you need Tailwind, you would just install Ember install, Ember CLI Tailwind, you know, install auto prefixer, install a couple different things that you would need, and then you just start developing. And so most of the time you're spending, I mean, I can't remember the last time I really configured any part of the build tool chain because, because the add-ons that are available these days kind of just take care of so much for us. So that's that was kind of the motivation behind Ember CLI becoming the standalone part of Ember development uh, is building that infrastructure to allow add-ons to kind of to kind of start us out at that tenth floor. So yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really... Uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language. 
is we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy and we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. So I think maybe something that would be interesting to talk about um, and uh, kind of get some interesting conversation going would be what does Ember's sort of rendering UI layer story look like these days and how has it sort of evolved over the years and is there anything like what does it do differently than you know what we're used to now with like sort of data driven um kind of throw away the dom and re-render it on demand sort of thing that we do with react you know has there have things changed like as you know people have sort of discovered these new ideas and new approaches i'm just sort of curious uh what ember's sort of template and UI layer story uh, looks like these days? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it gets pretty technical and I this is not an area where I've done like a super deep dive, um, but I think it also kind of is a testament to the abstraction layer that is the templating layer because mm. basically it's gone through a lot of changes and me as an Ember developer, I haven't really had to worry about that. So. At a high level, I kind of know the history. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with handlebars. Yeah. And that's kind of the templating layer for Ember. So, you know, the first version of Ember basically used handlebars. And, you know, those handlebars templates are a superset of HTML. So you can take any valid HTML, paste it into a handlebars template, and you'll get rendered output. And it's JavaScript that's, um, you know, rendering that. But ultimately, it's JavaScript taking that template, turning it into something like a function, and then running that function in, in the client and, um, you know, updating the DOM. And again, like how exactly it updated the DOM in the first version of Handlebars, I'm not completely aware of the technical kind of implementation, but that's at a high level, that's the idea, right? Yeah. So then Handlebars is a superset of HTML. So it's not just HTML. It also has places for you to do dynamic things like interpolate variables and do each loops and all those kinds of things. It's a very, um, it's like a declarative language, Handlebars. It's like uh, a very like restricted, almost like a restricted programming language, but it has, you know, variables and, and loops and everything. But the idea is to keep it very declarative so that at the rendering layer, you know, things are declarative and that lets uh, Ember give you certain certain kind of guarantees about your your interface being up to date. And I think the the, the best practices in, in in frameworks like React and Vue are similar in that you know your render function should be declarative and it shouldn't be like um, concerned with um, state changes and all that kind of thing. It's like given this state, I'm going to render this thing. Yeah, it's so, just like a transformation of state to HTML, basically. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, and whereas, you know, again, in React, I know like the output of the render function is a virtual DOM and then it's React's job to take that and actually apply the mutations to the DOM. Um, again, it's not, a, it's not exactly the same thing in Ember, but at a high level, I think the idea is the same. So, so uh, I think ahead. like what I'm kind of interested in is understanding a little bit more about like the mental model of like where templates live, how you interact with templates, because, um, you know, I'm, I do a lot of work with Vue and I'm working with React a little bit and I'm sort of sold on this idea now of having my, you know, data and behavior and stuff live in this same file, you know, where I'm rendering this template. So I'm curious um, in Ember what the connection looks like between like application logic and then like the, the template, you know, that that uses um, and what that actually kind of feels like to do is it similar is it totally different just interested to learn more about it yep definitely well i think that was that was one of the big selling points of react when it first came out the idea that um you know uh javascript and html and css were different technologies but they were just um they're all concerned with the same thing so there's kind of an, an inherent coupling between like the render function and the logic that's like maybe calling set state or doing some sort of styling logic in our components. And so, um, you know, I think, I think a React or Vue developer who opened up an Ember component would be able to understand what's going on in the same way that I'm able to understand what's going on if I look at a React component, even though I don't do React day to day. So I think the mental model is very, this, very similar. You have a component that's rendered from some parent caller It gets mounted to the DOM. There's some kind of life cycle events. So like did insert element did receive adders. I think, you know, in, in React, it's something like component, uh, like will mount, component did mount. Um, you have hooks for when data changes. And those give you opportunities to, you know, do some data transformations. So you could like transform some state or props that you have, update your component state. And then when it comes time to render, the render function can use state and props to, um, you know, transform those further into, into that HTML representation. And that's basically what the handlebars template looks like in Ember. It's, uh, it's backed by the state of the component, which is like a component class. Um, but uh, it's just the context of the template. So like if you had an HTML template and it said, hello world, and you replaced the world with like curly curly name, that would just be pulling a name property off of the component. So, uh, you know, in Ember, we do have two separate files. There's like a template.hbs and a component.js. Um, there are some ways there's, you can actually, uh, do the template as like an inline string in the component file, but at a high level, kind of, that's the idea is that yeah. they're sep they're separated deliberately. And, you know, Sebastian Mark Beige from the react community had a really good talk about uh, where he talked about React's decision to use JSX and kind of what the trade-offs were and the idea of um, this thing called the rule of least power where, you know, uh, React chose to give us more flexibility in our render functions with JSX because we basically get the full power of JavaScript there. And that's really nice in a lot of ways because you have that flexibility and you need to do something, you can just do it. Whereas in Ember and Handlebars, and we still use handlebars today, but it's powered by Glimmer, which is kind of a completely different rendering engine than when Ember first came out. Maybe mm. we can talk about that later, but kind of the developer interface to Glimmer is still a handlebars template. That's still how we kind of write our render functions. 
but it's deliberately underpowered. It's deliberately less flexible and, exp you know, it's less flexible than JavaScript. And that enables certain things like the, um, the rendering layer to be optimized in the future or uh, just it also. So that's part of it. And part of it is just nudging developers towards writing declarative kind of render functions. You, so you can't do a lot of imperative work, low level JavaScript work in the template because it's just not possible. It's basically just a declaration of what your UI should look like. So it's kind of, you know, there's trade-offs there and kind of to your point about what does it feel like day to day. So there's, there's definitely um, like some learning involved with, you know, I have this data and if I were just in a function, a JavaScript function, I could just write like, uh, you know, array dot index of some object. Like if I wanted to write out, this is the, you know, this item of the list and it's like a certain index and, you know, I know JavaScript, so I could just do like index of, or, yeah. you know, things like that in, in handlebars, you can't just call arbitrary JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, that's by design, but that means like when you need to do something like that, you end up either writing a helper or these days you use a library that provides a lot of helpers, um, that that provide things like con array contains or uh, title titleize or different things like that that are written as these kind of like pure functions that operate on your data in the templating layer to kind of transform your data. So that's kind of that is a different that is a different flow. It's a it's like there's a bit of a of um it's the trade off that they made. So there's a bit of a gap, right? Like there's there's a there's a it's two different kind of modes that you're working in yeah but there's some benefits that you get because of to that trade-off totally so. yeah so looking at this in the documentation it actually feels like a lot a lot like view in a lot of ways because view is you're kind of encouraged to use their template syntax too like you can do render function stuff but that's mostly like an escape hatch that people use for certain fancy things uh, or if you want to use jsx with view which basically nobody does um, right so, so if no one does it then right then it's it sounds more like view than uh like react's render function yeah so i think the the only real difference i guess like conceptually anyways um it seems like with ember you have like app components and then the component .js file like this is i'm kind of talking about a directory structure and mm -hmm. then that maps to a handlebars template that lives in a specific templates directory but matches the name of the component file that's kind of how they pair up so that that's one way to do it so uh -huh. this is this is one of the areas where uh there's two ways of doing things in ember and uh that usually doesn't last long um so right now there's kind of classic which is what you talked about you just described right there which is more like what you'd find in rails or i'm guessing laravel where you have like a controllers directory and you'd have like a posts uh, controller and then you might have like a models directory with a post model um, that's like the classic layout structure but uh, ember also supports a, a structure called pods which i would say the community is basically split on right now mm. in terms of people using the classic and using pods i only use pods these days because conceptually it makes much more sense basically you have a components directory and then you have something like a to-do list and in that folder, you'd have a component.js and a template.hbs. Got it. So those files will be co-located. Yeah. So, and so then you're kind of grouping things based on, um, you know, what they're for rather than like they're kind of like file type or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And like ever since components came into Ember, which was pretty early on, conceptually, you're always thinking about it as a single component because the template only makes sense with the component because the component is the context that backs the template. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the things that the template has access to. Um, 
Yeah, so, so you're I, always I, thinking them as one thing, you know? Yeah. So when did Ember get components? Because I feel like when I looked at Ember, like, I don't know, man, when the last time I looked at Ember was years and years and years ago. <laughs> but if, yeah. if, it feels like I don't remember seeing components. I remember it being very much more like controllers and models and views. Yep. Kind of more like what you're used to in a, a backend framework. So I'm sort yep. of interested to know a little bit about like the history there. Like when did components sort of come along? What are people using components for that you couldn't do well with the previous model? And how has a community sort of use of kind of the more classic approach with controllers and models and stuff changed as the component stuff kind of evolved and was introduced? Like are people basically migrating there or um, is there a place for both of them to be like in the same application? You know what I mean? So I'm just kind of curious what that story was like. Yep, definitely. So yeah, when it first came out, Ember was modeled after, um, again, this is my history here is a little bit spotty, but Coco development um, and the some of the architecture from, from iOS and, and native Mac development, where you have kind of like these views and you have like these view controllers. And the idea there is like you get your data from the back end, it lives in the model layer, and then you need to kind of decorate it with like view concerns that aren't directly um, coming from your server and that's where like the view controller comes from and so um, ember did start out you know in kind of this mvc style where you have the model and then you have like a view like a, a view object which would be similar to a component today but a little bit different yeah and then you have like the template which is always again the, the template and the view went together and the controller was this kind of other place like the you get the model data it's like a user with first name and last name. And then you put it on the controller, like the controller presents the model. So like maybe on the controller, you can write like a full name uh, computer property. Mm -hmm. And then the view uh, is like displaying the uh, the controller. And um, it, it's like, just like in Rails, you have a controller and then you like set instance data from that controller that's now available to the template. It was the same idea there. So you kind of had these like presenter layers to go through. And um, then uh, we added components for things that were reusable because the views were integrated with this, like the route, getting data, setting it on the controller and presenting it to the view and template. That was kind of like, you know, if I needed to make a new page in my application, I would start by like generating a route, defining the URL, then I would get kind of a controller route view pair for that new page. And that's where I would do my data fetching and then my presentation. And then we had things like, oh, well, what about like a date picker? Like a date picker is complex enough that I want it to be its own isolated, you know, piece of logic. And it doesn't need to be coupled to like a route or any even, even any particular data fetching logic. I just want it to be this reusable thing that I can reuse in many routes. And so that's originally where Ember Ember's component class came from. So we had ember.component, which was actually just a subclass of view. It did a lot of the same things. It had a context and it rendered a template. And then as like Angular really made the component model, um, like you could do a ton with Angular one components and directives, and then React came along. That's, we kind of, Ember kind of moved and realized actually like this implicit wiring we're doing between certain routes, um, and all of these controllers and views, like 
we don't need to do all this. We can just use components. Like people were using components more and more because they were kind of isolated. They're reusable, easier to test, easier to understand like the boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. all the same reasons that they became popular in, in things like React and Vue. And we were like, okay, that kind of makes more sense. And now we have two concepts and you're asking like, do I need a view here? Do I need a component here? It doesn't make sense. So these days, and that was like a year or two into Ember. And these days it's all components. Um, Yeah. So so would you say like the evolution there was kind of like people were using components for little things like a day picker, for example. But then over time, people were sort of asking questions like, well, what if I make a component for something like a little bit bigger than a day picker and then maybe something a little bit bigger than that and then a little bit bigger than that until eventually you're able to model like an entire page, I guess, with a component. Exactly. And there's something so compelling, right, about using just that one kind of uh, that one primitive that can yeah. just uh, grow. And uh, so, yeah, the, the date picker was like the gateway drug. And then before you knew it, like whole apps were just being composed of components. Yeah, cool. So, and then kind of just to, to, there was another part of the question, which was like the original architecture going from kind of MVC, whereas today we compose components. Mm. I guess the, the big difference between Ember and something like React that basically just provides you with components out of the box is that Ember still has kind of the M part. So the model part and the router part are still part of Ember. The view has become like all kind of a composed of components. But when, as an Ember developer, like when you build a new page, the way you start is at the route, at the router level. You say, I'm going to have a new page that lives at, you know, slash blog posts. I'm yep. going to get a route file for that, which is going to help me fetch my data. And then we still have Ember data as part of Ember. You know, you were asking before, like, what do you get in a new Ember app? You get Ember CLI, you get the Ember rendering layer, which, which uses Glimmer. And then you still have Ember data, which is uh, an identity map that is responsible for basically your cache that has a lot of conventions around how you fetch data and create data. And then, you know, once your new route has fetched data and loaded it into Ember's identity map, then that's when you pass that data into like a component and start rendering things. Interesting. Yeah. So what does the routing sort of look like? You're saying like each route has its own file. So there's a router where you define, you know, how a certain url in the in the address bar maps basically that maps to you know a certain route in your application yeah and then that route in your application gets its own file so that would be and again like you know just like you can kind of think of your app as a tree right like a tree of nested states like you have like slash blog posts like slash feed slash about and those three would be like top level folders and they would have like a route file in them and then they would have components in them that they render and so on. Um, but the idea with the route in Ember is, okay, so I'm going to add a new page, blog posts, right? I define blog posts in my router file and then I get a new route called the blog post route. So with that with that route file though, it, what, what type of file is that? Is it like a JavaScript class or is it like a template? It's a JavaScript class. It's an it's an instance of Ember.route. Okay. And what it does is has um, like a model hook and a before model and after model. And the model hook is set up to do data fetching. And the idea here is that when I visit slash blog posts, you know, the idea is you, you want to fetch data and then you want to render things. And the, the typical pattern is that you want to wait while you fetch data. And then once you have the data 
Once you have all the data that you need to render this route, then you can hand it off to the rendering layer and say, go ahead and render. And routes also have some conventions around loading and error states. So basically I would return like an Ajax request in my model hook of my route. That's how we fetch data. Got it. So this thing is promise aware. Whereas the rendering layer is, is synchronous. Like in render, rendering, you kind of render the data that you already have. And then, you know, you re-render when that data updates. But when it comes to the asynchronous parts of our apps, basically everyone has asynchronous parts of your apps and then you have synchronous parts and the route is the place where we put our asynchronous code because the router is basically a, a, a state machine. And, you know, as we all know, anyone who's done JavaScript development, like asynchronous parts of our code is where bugs happen, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I mean, that's like the hardest part, right? So the idea with the whole router in Ember is that it's a state machine that guarantees you're at one route at any time. And you also know that that route is going to be in sync with the URL. I mean, this was another big part of Ember's architecture from the very beginning because, you know, people were making backbone apps and, you, you know, you, you kind of think about building your app and, okay, when I click here, I'll, uh, I'll show this part of the screen and then, oh yeah, I'll also update the URL. But then when you hit the back button, like the URL and the app don't match or like the data that if you reload the page and then hit the back button, like your app doesn't do the data fetching because it didn't start out on that route. And so there was this whole thing that it's really tough to figure out these async parts of your app and get them right. Especially if you only think about doing something like making sure the URL is in sync with your app after the fact, like after you've written it. So that's kind of where the, the router came from and the conventions there. And so, Right, the router is kind of a state machine, and once it matches against the URL, it decides which route you're in. And once you enter that route, you get to do like uh, the data fetching there. So let's say you fetch all the blog posts, and then you could you could optionally render like a loading screen. And then once those blog posts are ready, that's when you go into the rendering layer and and start rendering. I mean, again, you can render stuff before that, but the kind of the happy path, like. Yeah. Once you have those blog posts, you're in component land where you're just thinking, okay, I want to render these things or transform these things or render the length and it's all the data I need. I have it. So are, do routes all have a corresponding template? Yeah. There's a top level template that the route renders first. Exactly. And then the way that you would kind of use components is similar to what you'd be doing in Vue or React where you're just kind of dropping these component tags into that template and maybe passing data to those components that you fetched in the actual route uh, JavaScript portion of the route. Exactly. So this is where the controller comes in too, because we still have a concept of a controller. So we don't have a concept of a view anymore. Basically, we got rid of the, the view and the component. We're doing the same thing. So we just have components now. Yeah. And conceptually, you can still think of your app as just being a built of kind of components. But there's like this top level component that interacts with the route. And because the route has this uh, asynchronicity in it, that's kind of where some of the wiring is done for you. So, right, if you're at the blog posts route, the blog posts uh, route will fetch the data and then it'll render the blog post template. And you also have a, an optional controller in case you need to do things like write computed properties or handle actions at the top level. So usually like if I'm doing an Ember app and building a new page, what I'll do is like define my route in the router file and then create a new route 
class, like an instance of the class. And then if I have any data fetching that I need to do for that route, I'll do it there. And then I can just start writing in the template. Like I can just use that data that was returned from the route and I can just write it in the template. And then as things get complex, you know, if I need to start breaking that bigger template up into smaller templates or, you know, make components that have more interactivity, that's where I would start doing that and creating new, new components and like decomposing that, that route level template into many components. Interesting. So when would you personally use like a controller in Ember for a route instead of just using like a kind of a top level component in the, the template that that route renders and just like putting the same sort of logic you might put in the controller on the component? Or is there like things that, you know, a controller can do that you can't do with a component? That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. And there's actually, you know, if you kind of look out a year in advance of Ember, like there's one possible path where controllers are kind of deprecated because they're in this kind of weird middle land between components and and routes. And the, one of the big reasons they're still around is because they are how you do query params. So this is another example of something that mm. kind of comes out of the box with an Ember app because um, just the way the router is integrated with the rendering layer. So query params live at the route level and they can do things like rerun that data fetching logic on your route and then you can pass those query params down and through your component hierarchy you know you can kick actions back up from your components to mutate those things but it's the controller's job to keep the urls query params in sync with the values of those parameters that live on the controller and and an ember an ember like every active route has a controller even if you don't have that file in your app if you don't create that file in your app that controller exists kind of in memory so it's part of the architecture but mm. i only find myself defining it if i need to do something like define a query param or if i just want to handle an action at the top level and i haven't gotten to the point where i want to start making a bunch of components like Got it. if it's just if it's not that complex and i can just do it at the route and uh, template level just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that's CodeShip. So CodeShip is a hosted continuous integration platform in the cloud that helps you increase your development productivity and ship to production more frequently. CodeShip lets you standardize your tooling and processes across your teams, speeds up your build times, and integrates into your existing ecosystem of tools. CodeShip is a great fit for your team, whether you're just trying to speed up the build times for large apps, or if you want to set up complex delivery pipelines for your microservices using tools like Docker, Kubernetes, and others. Forrester recently released their latest continuous integration tools report, which provides valuable guidance into the rapidly growing continuous integration and continuous delivery market. And CodeShip actually scored as a top five continuous integration vendor in this report. If you're interested in reading this report and learning more about what makes for a great continuous integration and continuous delivery service, uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link there for you. So if you want to spend less time managing your tools and speed up your software development, give CodeShip a try and sign up for free today at CodeShip.com. I've been a user of CodeShip uh, for many years for all the open source projects that I run continuous integration on, as well as private projects where I use CI, and I couldn't be happier with the service. So thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring the podcast this week, and back to the show. Um, so maybe another topic that'd be interesting uh, to get into is sort of what, I guess, state management looks like in Ember in general, uh, compared to some of the trends that we see now 
with like sort of flux inspired state management approaches. Um, is that an interesting discussion in, uh, in terms of how Ember does it, you think? Because I don't know enough yeah, about I Ember think, does it to I know think, if it's going to um, be an interesting discussion. I don't know a ton but, um, about Apollo, but Apollo sounds like um, something that is m- most similar to how we do data management on the client in Ember. And um, Ember comes with Ember data. And that's kind of how we do data fetching and state management. And so, you know, I think, again, like anybody who is using Reactor View would would feel at home at an Ember app in terms of how data flows. So data starts from the top of kind of the component tree and then flows down through the app. And then when you make changes, those changes kind of go back to like a single source of truth and then the parts of the app will re-render if they need to as a result of those changes. Yeah. And um, so, you know, in, in Redux, it's called like a global Atom app state. And we don't have, we don't use a single JavaScript object for all of our state. Instead, we use uh, an, a model layer in Ember Data. And this is a model layer that you would be familiar with if you were used to using like an ORM on the server, something like Active Record, yeah. where you have models that have relationships. And so when you fetch like an author and I want to include all their blog posts and all those blog post comments, Ember Data is what you use to like make that request to the back end. Your server would respond with the entire graph of data and it would get read into Ember Data's identity map. And now, like if I need to render, you know, comment ID three and I show it here and I show the author like in the top part of my interface, but also in the bottom part of my interface. And let's say that that, you know, I'm looking and that I'm looking at my app and then that person adds a new comment. And no matter where I'm showing like author.users.length in my template, it will update because all of those uh, handlebars like variables will reference back to that single identity map, which is kind of like a single source of truth. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, that's kind of how it works. And, um, again, it's kind of like, uh, it's a very conventional kind of at home feeling if you're used to working with relational data and, um, you know, again, even in something like rails, uh, active record effectively serves as a caching layer for the database. So the first time you would call something like, you know, post dot take the first 10 in active record, it would make maybe like a select star from posts limit 10 to the database. Yeah. But then the next time, let's say you have post IDs one through 10 loaded into active record. And then maybe later on in your kind of your flow for this request, you, you do like post dot find one. If you do post dot find one, well, rails is going to say, I already have that. I don't need to go to the database. So I'm just going to give it to you out of my cache. And it's the same idea with Ember data where, you know, you enter a route and you fetch something and it loads up the first 10 posts. And now when I'm maybe presenting the user with a form and I need to show that post, I can just say something like post.find one. It's very similar API and uh, it'll just use what I have on the cache, you know, and that lets you edit the data and then optionally kind of persist it back to the server or throw away changes. You know, but that that rich um, relationship aware identity map on the client lets you do a lot of things in the UI uh, independent of like having to go to the server every single time. So it's it's a really nice part of um, 
of the architecture. It's an important part of the architecture for sure. Yeah, cool. So I think um, probably like the the biggest value proposition for Ember that we've talked about so far anyways is just this idea of convention over configuration. And that's just going to appeal to certain types of people more than others. I know me as an example, one of like the biggest points of anxiety for me when I'm working with a new technology is just like wanting to know how would someone who really knows this tool do what I'm trying to do? Like, am I doing it the right way? Am I doing it in a not idiomatic way? And a lot mm-hmm. of time the answer is just like, well, there isn't an, an idiomatic way. You just kind of do what you like. And for me, that doesn't really work. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I can figure something out, sure. But I don't I don't want to have to figure something out because someone out there or has already figured out a way to do this yeah. that, you know, makes the most sense. You know, you don't want to you want to be able to like stand on the shoulders of other people who have sort of solved these these problems. So to me, that sort of um, value proposition is uh, is really appealing because, you know, that's one of the things that keeps me out of um, experimenting too much with super heavy, uh, SPA style JavaScript applications, because like, there's just so many moving parts and I feel like there's not enough opinions provided a lot of the time for exactly how you should do things. Like even stuff with like state management in, in react and view, there's just not a lot published out there about just like, what do you call the keys that you put inside the store you know how are you organizing things it's just like well however you think makes the most sense for your application but for me that's just not a great answer (laughs) Um, but i think like aside from that whole value proposition on like the convention over configuration thing one of the things that ember uh, gets a lot of praise for is just sort of the stability story so i'd be curious to hear from you um, what that is all about and why you think ember is a good choice uh, for teams that you know, care a lot about, um, stability and support. Yep. I think you did a great job summarizing the, uh, the convention over configuration. And that's definitely like one of the main values. And and if I had to ask, if you had to ask, you know, what's the second one, it's what they call stability without stagnation. That was kind of a round of talks that went around a few years into Ember when this kind of crystallized that this is also something that we really hold dear. And it's the idea that, Anyone who chooses, who kind of buys into Ember and, uh, you know, chooses to follow these opinions shouldn't get left in the dust. And so if you are on board with the conventions and you are willing to learn kind of the Ember way to do things, which, you know, you, you, I was kind of laughing to myself just because you were like, if I ask a community how to do this, they're going to say, oh, you can do it any way you want. Like in Ember, you'll always have someone who will have an opinion on how to do something. (laughs) So you don't, you don't have any shortage of opinions there. But if you're, if that's kind of, again, if you like, if you don't want to make those decisions and you want to just kind of go along with the herd in that sense, then you're going to have a conventional Ember app. And the idea is like, if you've done that and you've invested in that, you shouldn't get left behind. And so that's where the stability story comes in. And so, um, you know, basically there's a very sophisticated, um, there's a lot that's gone into the upgrade path for Ember. Everything from how often Ember is released is released on like a six week uh, release cycle, which I think they borrowed from like browser vendors, how they ship new updates. Yeah. And the idea there is like, there's always feature development going on in Ember. There's always bug fixes going on and every six weeks they just cut a release. And so, you know, in every like, um, I should know this, but I think it's every four releases, that's a long-term stability release, which means it's going to be supported for a longer period of time. Um, uh, you, you can just be guaranteed that like, you know, 2.10 and 2.14 and 2.18 are going to be um, kind of uh, um, 
it's actually 212 and, and 216 and 220 but you can you can be guaranteed those are going to be supported for you know x number of years just the way it's done in node and we also have like a deprecation workflow that's part of that so you know some teams will do it like they'll just update to every lts version of ember and you know once you're once you're within a major version like 2 and you go from 212 to 216 maybe there's been some deprecations your app won't break because there's no breaking changes within 2 but you'll have a panel in the ember inspector right in your chrome tools or you'll have a report as part of your your tests runs that will say all the apis you're using that are deprecated have been deprecated between let's say 212 and 216 and so this will let a team get rid of the deprecations. And when we go from 2x to 3, which we recently did, if you're running the last version of 2x and you run your test suite and you don't have any uh, deprecations, um, then you know you can just go to, uh, to Ember 3 and it won't be an issue. You won't have to worry about breaking your app or any big upgrade process at all. So... Um, and that's where the stability story comes from. And um, I, I think that's definitely a value. And, you know, it's really like a way that teams who have been building apps for that are five or six years old can take advantage of these new JavaScript features because, you know, we're developing at a time where JavaScript is changing faster than ever. And um, it can be hard to understand how to use everything and, and bring those new patterns to your apps. But I think the deprecation workflow plus the consistent releases has been a really powerful way. Like they do, they do a survey at EmberConf every year, and like a, a big majority of, of apps, like eighty percent, are on like the latest two versions of Ember, something yeah. like something crazy like that. So it, I think it really works, and it means that we know where every Ember developer is at, and they're they're going to take advantage of kind of newer yeah. features. So that's cool. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point actually, because you like. Everyone's always excited about kind of the hippest, newest tools and stuff and doing things in the latest and greatest way. But the reality is most people are working at companies on projects that existed before these tools existed. <laughs> so, right. you know, they're they're always going to be working with, with technologies that existed uh, three years ago because you can't just rewrite your application every time, you know, a new JavaScript framework comes out. So I never really thought <laughs> of, well, you, you can, and I'm sure a lot of teams do, but I think, I think the reality is most people don't. You have people right. just like, I bet you there's, I don't know this, I, I don't know if I can make, make this bet for sure, but I bet you the number of Angular 1 apps in production uh, very closely rivals like the number of React apps in production <laughs> still, <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? Even though that is not used for new projects really at all anymore. So yeah. I never really thought of this as like a value proposition of Ember, but it is sort of sort of interesting that um, if you're sort of worried about that sort of thing where it's like, you know, I want to be able to take advantage of the latest sort of ideas and developments in like the JavaScript community, like even an idea as like different and controversial as it was at the time as the way React works in general you know what i mean like what react is it's like we throw out the dom we re-render re it from scratch based on this state every single time um you know the end like that's the sort of thing that you're not easily going to be able to benefit from these sorts of ideas with with tools that just kind of stay what they are or eventually get abandoned or something so yep. what i think is interesting about embers there's sort of this promise from sort of the maintainers and the community that it's like if you want to be able to take advantage of all the 
interesting things that are happening in the JavaScript community. You know, one of the goals of Ember is that you can have a stable place to sort of take advantage of that stuff and have a path to always move forward to that stuff without sort of getting left behind. So even if it means like maybe you're a little bit behind here and there as you sort of wait to make sure that like, okay, this idea is really something that is going to work and that we're going to move towards the, the movement does happen and a, an easy path is provided to make it possible for you to sort of keep this like one foot planted in like your Ember home base, knowing everything is sort of, you know, structurally stable. Um, but you get the benefits of all this, this new stuff as the community adopts it and moves forward without having to sort of throw everything away every time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think all the communities learn from each other and I'm really, you know, I'm proud of that, that, uh, no one feels like they're the only ones who have all the good ideas. And so, you know, uh, Ember has stolen great ideas from lots of communities and kind of like you said, been able to bring them back to years old Ember apps in a very easy way, um, making sure that those um, features are uh, stable and actually worth uh, kind of integrating into the whole architecture. And then, you know, these days providing it via a single command, we have like an Ember CLI update command, which just mm. will bump everything. And again, part of that you get because because we do use all of the libraries kind of in tandem with each other. We know you're using you know Ember Data and the router and this version of Ember and Glimmer and Ember CLI. And so we know that these new versions of everything will work together. So it makes for a pretty pleasant, I mean, it makes for, that's one of the most pleasant parts about being an Ember developer is not having to think about any of that stuff. Yeah, nice. Cool, man. Well, maybe that's a good place to, to start wrapping up. I was, I think a, maybe a good final question to end on would be, um, if someone sort of has been listening to this conversation and has been sort of feeling some of these pains maybe in the projects that they work on that Ember is sort of designed to solve and, you know, the opinions that Ember has uh, that are designed to avoid these sorts of things. Um, if someone's sort of captivated by that, where would you recommend they go to learn more about uh, maybe adopting Ember on their team or trying it out on a project? I think um, the a lot of the conference talks, the keynotes from Yehuda and Tom um, are a great place to start. And, you know, there's some more technical conference talks as well um, that teach, you know, some of the the kind of the modern patterns, what it's like to build a modern Ember application. Um, And of course the website and the guides, and uh, there's a tutorial there where you can just build an Ember application from scratch. And you would, you know, starting from, getting Ember CLI on your machine, creating a new app, defining routes, running tests. You know, testing is another, I know we didn't really talk about this, but testing is probably another one of the big three values of Ember and, you know, doing kind of live browser kind of uh, end-to-end tests with all of the user interactions has been like a core value from the beginning. So, you know, as part of a, a good tutorial, you would see that as well. And the guides, you definitely have a lot of material on testing and, um, so, uh, yeah, that would be, that's the place I would start. And then, uh, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, I make videos, me and Ryan make videos. We're, we're targeting more, um, kind of like a day-to-day working Ember developers who are, have been using Ember and know the basics and yeah. are teaching kind of more advanced things. Um, uh, you know, how, how to make composable components or, you know, kind of like render list components you might hear in other, um, 
other frameworks in Ember. They're called contextual components or, you know, lessons on object-oriented design, things like that. And um, that's that's that Ember map. And then uh, there's also another uh, screencast site called Embercasts, which is more of a kind of a beginner um, creating an app, a, a basic app, you know, from scratch. So if you've never made an Ember app before and want to learn how to do it in a very idiomatic way, that's kind of another place you could go. Awesome, man. Um, well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you about this stuff. Uh, I learned a lot, and it actually kind of excites me to to give Ember a go and sort of see what Ember's take is on on some of the, the ways that people are kind of into writing their JavaScript stuff these days. Uh, is there any uh, final notes or anything that you want to leave anybody with? Um, I think... Uh, I think- that's probably it. You know, I think it's, uh, it's, I'm glad we talked about kind of what Ember does, uh, differently. And I think really the most important thing, you know, like I love Ember. I've been using it for a long time. And, uh, if I were going to start a new project on my own, I would use Ember cause I know it and love it. But from my perspective, like whether you're using something like Ember or react or view, like they all have different, uh, values. Like view is always focused on progressive adoption. And, you know, React is is more in that space where it's kind of experimenting on the latest and new ideas that, you know, some of them are going to pan out, some of them aren't. And uh, it's a small piece of the puzzle, but then there's other pieces, whereas Ember values things like testing and, um, you know, being able to rotate in new developers on a team and shared solutions and conventions. And so... Uh, I think it's great that we have all these tools and technologies and, and communities, and it's really for people to be successful. It's really about finding the ones that resonate with you. And uh, yeah, if testing and, and conventions and shared shared solutions resonate with you, I would definitely recommend people check out Ember. Awesome, man. Uh, what's the best place for people to kind of keep up with you and what you're working on? Probably Twitter, uh, Sam Selikoff on uh, Twitter. And then again, the website is uh, embermap.com and where you can see videos of us teaching Ember. So perfect. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much again for coming on, dude. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes. Thanks for having me. This is great. If anybody's interested in show notes for this episode, you can find them at fullstackradio.com slash 89. Uh, thanks to Robar and CodeChip for sponsoring the podcast this week, and I'll see you next time.